You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com gps. That's netsuite.com gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria. Today on the show, tensions ratchet up with North Korea after the death of Otto Warmbier. Just how dangerous have things gotten? And can China play a real role in cooling things down? I have a great debate. And Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel, the no-holes-barred former White House Chief of Staff, weighs in on the current White House and the man in charge of it all, Donald Trump. They've made some choices that I think uh, will now have consequences that are not just immediate but long-term. Also, the urgent issue that both the President and Rahm Emanuel are warning about, America's crumbling infrastructure. And what is the future of conservatism in the Trump era? Will the world of Ronald Reagan ever return? I pledge to you a government that will not only work well, but wisely. The always sharp David Brooks weighs in. Finally, a windswept island in the middle of the Pacific. It should be a paradise. Instead, it's a dump, literally. And it's all our fault. I'll explain. But first, here's my take. While we've been focused on the results of special elections, the ups and downs of the Russia investigation, and President Trump's latest tweets, under the radar, a broad and significant shift in American foreign policy appears to be underway. Put simply, the U.S. is stumbling its way into another decade of war in the greater Middle East. Donald Trump came into office with a refreshing skepticism about America's policy toward the region. Everybody that's touched the Middle East, they've gotten bogged down. But Trump also sees himself as a tough guy. I would bomb the shit out of him. Now that he's in the White House and has surrounded himself with an array of generals, his macho instinct seems to have triumphed. The administration has ramped up its military operations across the greater Middle East. But what is the underlying strategy? In the fight against ISIS, U.S. forces have been aggressively initiating attacks, resulting in sharp rises in civilian deaths in Iraq and Syria. And in a dramatic escalation this week, the U.S. shot down a Syrian warplane, putting Washington on a collision course with Syria and its ally, Russia. Worse yet, it is unclear how this belligerence toward the Assad regime will achieve the sole stated mission of America's involvement in Syria, to defeat ISIS. Logically, if Assad gets weaker, his main opposition forces, various militant Islamist groups, including ISIS, will get stronger. Compounding the incoherence, the administration explained that while it had attacked Assad's forces, it was not fighting the Assad regime. And the downing was simply an act of collective self-defense. A few more such acts of self-defense and American combat troops could find themselves on the ground in the middle of the Syrian civil war. In Afghanistan, Trump has delegated the details of a mini surge of 4,000 more troops to Defense Secretary James Mattis and other senior military leaders. 
Now, let's remember, the United States has been in Afghanistan for 16 years. It has had several surges in troop numbers. It has spent almost a trillion dollars on that country. And yet, Mattis acknowledges that the U.S. is not winning. What will an additional 4,000 troops achieve that over 100,000 troops could not? In Yemen, with Washington's latest arms sales to Saudi Arabia, the U.S. is further fueling the Saudis' proxy war against Iran, a war that has led the kingdom into a de facto alliance with al-Qaeda in Yemen. The new Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, seems likely to persist in this conflict, even though it has resulted in a humanitarian catastrophe. A child in Yemen is dying from preventable causes every 10 minutes, according to UNICEF, and the poorest country in the Arab world has been turned into a wasteland in which terror groups will compete for decades to come. In almost every situation American forces are involved in, the solutions are more political than military. Everything military has been tried. This has become especially true in places like Syria and Afghanistan, where many regional powers have major interests. Military force without a strategy and a deeply engaged political and diplomatic process is destined to fail, perhaps even to produce a series of unintended consequences. Think about the last decade and a half. During the campaign, Donald Trump seemed to be genuinely reflective about America's role in the Middle East. This is not usually me talking, yeah. okay, because I'm very proactive, right. as you probably know. I know. But, but I would sit back and let's see what's going on. Yes, after 16 years of continuous warfare, hundreds of thousands dead, trillions of dollars spent, and greater regional instability, somebody in Washington needs to ask before the next bombing, before the next deployment, what is going on? For more, go to cnn.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. Rahm Emanuel knows just how tough it is to enter the White House on Inauguration Day and try to set up a president's agenda. He did it. Emmanuel was President Obama's first chief of staff, and when he walked into the White House on January 20, 2009, he had the huge additional challenge that the American economy was imploding with the worst global recession since the 1980s, perhaps since the 1930s, already underway. So how would he grade the first five months of the current resident of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, his chief of staff, the rest of the administration? Joining me is the mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel. So, Ram, when, when you're watching them, what do you think? Thank God I'm mayor of the city of Chicago. No, and I, here's what I would say, uh, Farid, is I used to tell President Clinton this, which is if we knew in the first year of the first term what we knew by the first year of the second term, we'd all be geniuses. Nobody is really ever, ever, ever ready. Because the only thing that prepares you is a campaign. Um, but you have a president that never held office, and basically everybody in the White House but a few have never actually been there. And while I, you focused on me from President Obama, I was senior advisor to President Clinton, but you also had uh, other members of Tom Donnellan, national security staff, Ron Klain, who was Vice President Biden's chief of staff, was in the White House before. You had a number of people have been there that have the experience of the rhythm of a White House and knowing how to constantly weigh policy against politics, against uh, the public uh, or pu public relations. 
And that's the kind of three-dimensional chess you have to do. And I would just say they've made some choices that I think uh, will now have consequences that are not just immediate but long-term. And uh, they need some victories. And I keep emphasizing that, uh, you know, victories beget victories, losses beget losses. And I think that uh, they've made some mistakes that have exacerbated already a troubling, fragile coalition and uh, political position of a president. So what is a White House like in, in a situation like this? You, you, you saw the Clinton White House during the, the impeachment process. Uh, is it a kind of bunker mentality? Is it a siege mentality? What do you think is going? Is it possible for people to just execute policy and to plan policy? Or is the investigation taking over everything? Well, uh, there's, if anybody tells you the investigation doesn't kind of permeate, they're not being honest with you. You have to fight it. But it doesn't mean you're going to succeed, but you have to fight it. And what that means is you have to set up a separate communication, separate legal, separate kind of a congressional and outreach. And then a total White House operation. Now, I think if you go back, we did a pretty good job under the Ken Starr investigation for President Clinton. But if we sat there and high-fived each other, said, oh, we kept it Chinese wall, that's not honest. Uh, you, it's just too dominant a factor. It's very hard to keep an investigation of the presidency and the people in the White House separate from day-to-day -day operations. Very hard, but it is what you have to do. Do you understand the sort of Bannon strategy, which seems to be go for your base because you'll always have them. These guys at the center, they'll never, they'll never come to you. And, you know, that, that, that's the theory. It has begat a 36% approval rating. So it seems to me it doesn't work, but what do you think? Well. It may, uh, well, you have to separate this. There are different needs from congressional to, local, to your local party officials versus um, uh, your statewides. It may work for President Trump, but it does not work for the rest of uh, the Republicans. And his relationship with his voters may not be transferable. We're going to find out some stuff pretty soon about as it relates to other congressional races, other uh, elections in both uh, New Jersey and Virginia for governor. Etc. Um, their strategy is very straightforward: get their voters and keep them on amphetamines, highly charged. Um, I'm not sure in where the battlegrounds for Congress are, the battlegrounds are for the state houses. That's going to be an electoral uh, strategy for success up and down the Republican ticket. And I think um, it's not just a strategy. There's a set of policy decisions that are slowly but surely uh, alienating uh, persuadable voters. And I think that basically. As far out as you really can see now, which I don't think you can, this election in 2018 will be a referendum on Trump. Democrats are going to say we're going to be a check on this president, a checkmate. And the Republicans, and we're going to accuse the Republicans of being a blank check. And that's basically it. So explain something to you. A puzzle I've had with President Trump is the <laughs> one, one, <laughs> one, one, one <laughs> policy puzzle. <laughs> Why wouldn't he, when he came into office, mm -hmm. have done what he said he was going to do throughout the campaign, uh, announce the creation of Make America Great Bonds, 40 or 50 yeah. or 30 or whatever you want to call them, raise money at the lowest rates really you're ever going to see, and actually build uh, infrastructure, putting people to work, putting his base yeah. to work. Why Fareed, has he not done Fareed, it? Fareed, I'll give you one up on that, if I can. Think about his presidency and the trajectory of his presidency. Had he started on the one area that was bipartisan, rather than the one area like healthcare, which was going to be polarization. He'd have Democrats in a position we'd have to either decide to cooperate 
and therefore our base would be angry or work with him on building something. His entire presidency would be focused on the one thing he pledged, which is jobs. He decided to do the exact opposite, which is to go to a set of policies on health care that would be divisive and would be unproductive. And as somebody who's worked on health care, it was going to be a cul-de-sac. And that's exactly what's happened politically and economically, and it's wrong. So my view is he made both a political and a policy blunder of the first order, which is what rookies make when they come right out of the box. And do you think that it was because he listened to people like Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell who said this is what the Republicans want? Yeah, I think a lot of people, um, I, I don't know. I only know what I read, so I don't know the, I know, the one thing I do know is that what you read is 10% usually of the ice above the water level. You don't know everything below. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, the president makes the call. He can listen to all the advice, but there's only one guy that makes the call. Had he started at, uh, on infrastructure, one, it would have been good for the economy, two, it would have been bipartisan, and three, he would have been focused on his core message, which was jobs. The talk about health care vis-a-vis his base, I think, misread what his base wanted. I think it was actually a total misreading of the Republican base. He actually changed the Republican base, and the Republicans in Congress aren't up to speed with what his base is. Now, that's a political analysis, but it is actually, if you look at the history and of his... And your point is his, ba- his, his base is actually... More job-focused, more America-focused. And, and working class anxious about health care, not really interested in the to- ideological debate about totally repealing mis- yeah, Obama. Totally for. misreading, I think, uh, what the base is. And therefore, but he made that call. And I think there is still, fundamentally, a dire need and a desire, both a dire need and a desire, to build a 21st century transportation system for a 21st century economy. You can see places that are succeeding, that are investing in the future, and you can see people that aren't investing in what's happening to their economy. And but, it literally cost, it's a, but it will cost money. Totally. I mean, you can't get, it costs money to build it, it's going to cost money to build the future. Back in a moment, much more to discuss with Rahm Emanuel, including how he is making Chicago's infrastructure great again in America's third largest city. You would be forgiven if you had missed entirely the president's infrastructure week at the beginning of the month. After all, the week just happened to coincide with the most anticipated testimony since Watergate, Jim Comey's. Trump announced that America deserved the best infrastructure in the world and said in his most Trumpian manner, It's time to rebuild our country, to bring back our jobs, to restore our dreams. And yes, it's time finally to put America first. In calling attention to America's infrastructure problems, President Trump finds himself in, with some strange bedfellows like my guest, Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel. So what do you think of, uh, of Trump's plan? Well, I don't know it. Uh, uh, the one thing that came out of it is somewhat the privatization of uh, the aviation system. I, I fundamentally uh, believe you're not going to get from here to there a 21st century uh, transportation system for a 21st century economy without money. I'm open to public and private. We've done some of that, but it doesn't replace public. I'm for an increase in the gas tax. It's real money for real problems that will solve real problems. 1994 was the last time we actually increased as a country the gas tax, and we didn't index, and it, it indexed it to inflation. If you asked President Clinton, he would have told you that was a mistake. So a lesson when I became mayor, we raised the water rate over a four-year window and then indexed it to inflation. I don't want another mayor or city council to handle that politics. It's $4.9 billion over a 10-year window, 900 miles of water pipe, 670 miles of sewer pipe, 
two largest water filtration plants in the United States and pumping stations will be totally uh, rebuilt. And then it's indexed, so the work continues. Ram, you have found a way to make uh, Chicago's infrastructure great again um, without much help from the federal government. Explain how. Some yes, some no. Uh, on the airports, we basically, when we're done with our new runway system, oh, here we'll have added midways capacity, and we did that with federal help. Uh, two our, new runways. Yes, two new runways, but when the system is complete, we're the only city in the United States that basically built a third airport in the last decade because we're adding midways capacity to O'Hare. That's how you have to look at that. And an express train line to the airport. Well, we're now exploring that, and we'll be actually uh, working on an RFP exactly on that. Our mass transit system where half the track will be new by 2019, a third of the, uh, about 40 uh, individual stations will be totally new. Every rail car by 2019 will be totally new or rebuilt. We have 4G, the first system, completely, the first uh, uh, mass transit system with 4G on it. We've done that with local, state, and federal resources. How many uh, but people? the school modernization, we're doing that alone as a city. And you point out this, is, this, this, has, this means lots of jobs for people in Chicago. Oh. Uh, we did about 60, if you do it over a four-year window, this next leg is around 50 to 60,000 construction jobs, all building trade jobs. In the first uh, four years, it was also a similar kind of 52,000 jobs. It, we are now, last April was our lowest unemployment rate in April in the history of the city of Chicago. And I'll give you other data points. Five years in a row, number one city in corporate relocations in the United States of America. Five years in a row, the number one city for direct foreign investment in the United States of America. And my most important as it relates to this, every year for the last five years, the city of Chicago's economy grew faster than the United States, faster than New York, and faster than D.C. Uh, That's JLL Economist. And I do believe our investments in our transportation system and capital has created a foundation for greater and faster economic growth uh, than the country as a whole. Um, Rahm Emanuel, pleasure to have you on as always. Thank you. Next on GPS, who can possibly tame Kim Jong-un and his North Korean regime? Is it Donald Trump or China or anybody? We'll tell you when we come back. On Monday, American student Otto Warmbier died just days after being released from 17 months of custody in North Korea. In response, President Trump tweeted, The U.S. once again condemns the brutality of the North Korean regime as we mourn its latest victim. And then, while I greatly appreciate the efforts of President Xi and China to help with North Korea, it has not worked out. At least I know China tried. We'll try to get to the bottom of what Trump meant and whether there is anything he can do about this rogue regime. Joining me now are Joe Serenzoni, the president of the Plowshares Fund, and Victor Cha, who is Korea Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Welcome, gentlemen. Pleasure to be Pleasure here. Pleasure to be with you. Victor, um, a, a lot of people argue that while we think that North Korea is under brutal sanctions, the most sanctioned regime in the world, and therefore there isn't much more one can do about it, uh, there are a number of people who say when you look at it closely and you look at the actual enforcement of sanctions, we could turn the screws a lot more tightly on North Korea. Do you agree? Yeah, Free, I think that's right. Um, When you compare the sanctions regime that was put together against Iran with that against North Korea, there really is no comparison. The sanctions against Iran were much more comprehensive. 
Uh, in the case of North Korea, a very important player in a sanctions regime is going to be China, because 85% of North Korea's external trade is with China. So we can do other things on the margins, trying to impose sanctions for human rights violations and other sorts of things. But the key player really there is China. And China, and do, you while think, do you think that, do you think that uh, uh, Donald Trump was accurate in saying that the Chinese tried but weren't able to succeed? Because, you know, a lot of people feel uh, the Chinese always promise they're going to crack down this time. And at the end of the day, they never really do. It's, a, it's, it's a, for a, a tangled set of reasons. It's an old uh, treaty ally. They worry about the consequences of destabilizing, but they never push that hard. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that's right. Uh, China is the key player, but they will not put enough pressure on the regime for fear that it's going to collapse. China has said that they will impose a, a coal ban on North Korea. They don't appear to be living up to that promise to stop coal imports from North Korea. Commercial satellite imagery of the North Korean country shows that there's infrastructure and construction projects taking place, which don't look like what you would expect from a regime that is feeling the pinch of worldwide sanctions. So uh, China is not doing what it should be doing in terms of this. Uh, there are many reasons, as, as you said, as to why that's the case. Um, and that is perhaps why uh, President Trump tweeted what he did. Joe, you have a, a kind of wholly different view of an, an alternate path to getting North Korea to uh, denuclearize. Uh, why don't you lay it out? Sure. You can get China to do more, and they can do more, and you can put more sanctions on North Korea, and we should do that. But sanctions alone are never going to solve your problem. No country in history has ever been coerced into compliance or collapse over a nuclear uh, weapons-related sanctions regime. But lots of countries have been convinced to give up their nuclear weapons. And this is the missing element. The Chinese are willing to do more, but they want to know what is the United States going to do? Are you willing to enter into talks with North Korea, for example? There are four countries that are key to solving this problem. Obviously, the United States and North Korea, but also South Korea and China. Right now, you have the Chinese, the South Koreans, and even the North Koreans singing notes from the same song. They are willing to talk about a freeze on North Korean capabilities, not the elimination. What do the North Koreans want? They want security assurances from the United States. They want that manifested in a freeze on U.S. and South Korean joint military exercises on their border. The question is, is the U.S. willing to do that? Uh, Victor, I'm, I'm, going to I'm going to assume you're going to say we tried that in 2005. They were made a, a kind of offer and during the Clinton years, uh, and it didn't work. Yeah, they, the North Koreans have been given on numerous occasions security assurances, um, even negative security assurance in the six-party talks, which the United States said on paper that we will not attack North Korea with nuclear or conventional weapons. Um, you know, I'm all in favor of a freeze as well. I do believe that the North Koreans, the Chinese, and the South Koreans are moving towards a position where the United States needs to stop our military exercises with the South Koreans uh, in return for a freeze. I don't think that that's a particularly good deal. Those exercises are purely defensive. And readiness, if there's ever a need for readiness anywhere in the world, it's going to be on the Korean Peninsula, given all of North Korean provocations. You know, maybe there are other ways to get to a freeze, but to give up military exercises for that would be giving a lot more on the part of the United States than we've given in the past 
for a lot less than what we've gotten in the past. And I don't think that's a good negotiation. Joe, what do you say to those who say we've tried this in the Clinton years? Bush made an offer. The North Koreans never quite uh, agree or comply. Well, uh, Victor's absolutely right. There are very sound reasons why we do those joint exercises. And this would be painful for us to give it up. That's right. But if you're not going to give that up, then what are you going to give up? And this is real, really the core of the problem right now isn't actually North Korean intransigence. They're willing to talk. It's the fact that we don't have a North Korea policy. We tried to outsource it to China, thinking that they were going to solve it for us. That was always a pipe dream. So what is our policy? It is incoherent right now. The South Koreans don't know. The Chinese don't know. The Japanese don't know. The, the, the administration is, is running on fumes. And partially, it's because they haven't brought the people in who could do the job. They haven't appointed people in the State Department who know what they're doing, who can do this. Look, there's one person on the show right now who would be an excellent assistant secretary of state to help solve this problem. And it ain't me. <laughs> well, on that note of recommendation, uh, which we hope uh, President Trump is listening to, we're going to have to end this now. Victor Cha, Joe, pleasure to have you on. Thank, Thank you, you, Fareed. Next on GPS, there are many things to fear in today's world. One of the scariest is small, smaller than the eye can see. What you need to know about germs and why it's scary when we get back. Want a daily dose of Fareed and his team? Now you can get it with Fareed's Global Briefing, the newsletter that gives you the best insight and analysis on global affairs. Go to CNN.com slash Fareed to sign up. Now for our What in the World segment. You hear a lot about the enormous threats coming from terrorism, global warming, and Vladimir Putin. But one of the biggest threats facing the United States isn't big at all. Actually, it's tiny, microscopic, thousands of times smaller than the head of a pin. Deadly pathogens, either man-made or natural, could trigger a global health crisis. And the United States is wholly unprepared to deal with it. Bill Gates recently weighed in on the problem, saying, of all the things that could kill more than 10 million people around the world, the most likely is an epidemic stemming from either natural causes or bioterrorism. And the World Bank estimates that a worldwide flu pandemic could result in a global economic loss of $3 trillion, which makes President Trump's latest budget proposal released last month all the more stunning. He is asking for draconian spending cuts to the very government institutions that are tasked with protecting Americans from deadly diseases and bioterrorism. The budget is called a new foundation for American greatness, and it's anything but. Here are just a few examples of proposed cuts. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's budget would grow from $7.7 billion to $6.4 billion, a 17% cut. And the National Institutes of Health would go from a budget of 31.8 to $26 billion, an 18% cut. There are other examples, too, like the obscure National Center for Emerging and Zoonotic Infectious Diseases, which is within the CDC, and whose stated goal is to protect against the unintentional or intentional spread of infectious diseases like Ebola, smallpox, anthrax, rabies, and plague. They'll see their budget go down from 579 to 514 million dollars, a cut of 11 percent. As you can imagine, many in the scientific community have been outraged. Dr. Thomas R. Frieden, the former head of the CDC, 
tweeted that the proposed budget was unsafe at any level of enactment. And even Republican Representative Tom Cole of Oklahoma said cutting the Centers for Disease Control leaves the American people very vulnerable. The administration seems to have developed amnesia about the global health emergencies of the recent past. For example, between late 2013 and January 2016, more than 11,000 people died from the wildly contagious Ebola virus, which ravaged Liberia, Sierra Leone and Guinea, with some victims seen as far away as Nigeria, Spain and the United States. And then there's the mosquito-borne Zika virus, which the Department of Defense estimates has infected at least 178,000 individuals in the Western Hemisphere since 2015. Zika has been linked to the birth defect microcephaly, and the World Health Organization has said that Zika remains a significant, enduring public health challenge requiring intense action. But one only needs to look back 100 years to 1918 when the Spanish flu pandemic killed an estimated 50 million people around the globe. In many ways, we're even more vulnerable today. Densely packed cities, wars, natural disasters, and international air travel mean a deadly virus propagated in a small village in Africa can be transmitted almost anywhere in the world, including the United States, within 24 hours. And I haven't even touched upon the potential for bioterrorism. According to Daniel Gerstein of RAND, biological weapons are now within the reach of many rogue nations and possibly some terrorist groups. Which is to say that a budget based on America first is short-sighted and won't help the U.S. stave off the threat from deadly pathogens. Biosecurity and global pandemics cut across all national boundaries. Pathogens, viruses and diseases are equal opportunity killers. When the crisis comes, we will wish we had more funding and more global cooperation. But then it will be too late. Up next is the conservatism of Ronald Reagan dead and gone forever. David Brooks weighs in on the future of the right in the wake of Donald Trump. Ronald Reagan. In the minds of many on the right, he will forever be the king of conservatism. His presidency, the high point of that movement. So what does Donald Trump's presidency represent? Where does conservatism go from here? Where does the Republican Party go from here? Early in the week, I had the opportunity to talk to a man who thinks a lot about these issues. The New York Times columnist, David Brooks. David Brooks, pleasure to have you on. Good to be with you. Um, when you look at Trump and the way he's been governing, um, the things he's passed, it's kind of a hodgepodge of some things that seem hardcore Republican economic agenda, the repeal of Obamacare. Some of it is the trade protectionism he's always promised. Is there a new conservatism developing? No, I don't think so. Not, uh, not in this administration. I think we saw glimmers of it in the campaign. And what Trump understood that a lot of us didn't understand what debate we were having. We grew up in the debate of big government versus small government, whether you want to use government to enhance equality, as Democrats did, or reduce government to enhance freedom, as Republicans did. But in the campaign, Trump said, that's not our debate. Uh, as many people, including you, have said, it's open-closed. It's between those who feel the headwinds of globalization blasting in their faces, and they want closed borders, closed trade, security, and those who feel it's pushing at their backs, and they want open trade, open opportunity, and open social mores. And he identified that we're having a new debate now. And what's central to his administration is he hasn't delivered on that. 
And that's because there are not a lot of Trumpians in the world of policy. Uh, and so he hasn't exactly helped the people who've gotten him into office. He staffed his administration to the extent that it is staffed with people who basically believed in the Reagan bargain of 1984, which was, you know, cut tax rates, uh, reduce government regulation. And so I think he opened the door for a new kind of conservatism, but has not fulfilled it. That's for somebody in the future. So where do Republicans go? When you look at Republican congressmen, politicians, um, have they looked at that, that campaign and said, we need to become more populist conservatives? Um, is that where the party is heading? Yeah, there, there was a book that was really useful to read, a short book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn. And he said, what happens in science, but it's also true in politics, is you get a paradigm. You get a way of looking at the world, Reaganism. That was a paradigm. It works for a little while, and then slowly it detaches from reality, and it's hollow, but nobody knows it. Somebody comes along, punctures it, and it collapses. And that's what Trump did to Reaganism. But then you get this period of chaos where people really haven't relieved the old paradigm, but they haven't, don't know what the new one is. And then you get a period of competition of paradigms. And so you, in the Republican Party, you're going to get a libertarian paradigm. You're going to get a paleoconservative Pat Buchanan paradigm. You're going to get a whole bunch of different ones, and they will fight it out. And if I had to bet, it would, I would like an Alexander Hamilton, open trade, a lot of immigration, a lot of economic dynamism. But frankly, when I look at the polls, there are not a lot of people who want what I want. Uh, the Steve Bannons of the world, is, that's where a lot of the people are. If you, it's, they're older, they're economically disadvantaged, and they want a national conservatism that will protect them. And if that is what they want, the party you think will, will, will fold? Because to me, what's been really interesting to watch is conservative intellectuals have, by and large, um, particularly the more prominent ones like you, have stuck true to their ideas and ideals and, you know, been very critical of Trump. I think somebody like George Will essentially got fired by, for, from Fox for that right, reason. Right. But the Republican politicians have not. They have all caved and in some yeah. way or the other um, have accommodated themselves to Trump. Yeah, and, and either those of us in the intellectual class are hidebound and rigid and we're stuck with their ideas and we're not reflecting reality, or the politicians are craven and they just don't want to lose their jobs, so they'll go wherever the people are. And that's basically where they are. I think one of the things we've learned and Trump has demonstrated is that parties are not that ideological anymore. Trump ran against a lot of Republican positions and Republicans signed on. What parties are these days are cultural signifiers, social identity markers, and just teams. And people think, what, what team has people like me on it? What fits my social identity? A lot of people looked around, a lot of suburban women in Missouri looked around and said, Sarah Palin, she's kind of like me. And whether Sarah Palin believed in high tax rates or low tax rates or health insurance markets or nothing, something, other health care policy, that's not what they were thinking about. They were thinking about who's like me. And for a lot of uh, people in the Republican Party, which is older, whiter, and less educated at the core, um, Trump was like that. Does that tell you that they will be loyal to him to the end if, there are in, if these investigations go, go badly for the president? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, one of the things I think we've learned uh, in spades over the last 20 years is that we in the political class get super excited about scandal. And we think, oh, it's about to tear that person down. But time and time again, when you actually go out to districts where people are voting, it's sort of just a noise in the background. Uh, and they're voting the things that they care about, their, their, econo their economics, the health care, their education, or they like the person. 
Uh, and so in my conversations with Trump voters, the scandals just don't come up. Uh, they think, oh, he's kind of a buffoon or whatever, but at least he's still basically trying to say the right things. And so I don't think it'll have any addition. And is part of Trump's support that, that, you know, that core 35% or so of the country uh, strengthened every time the media criticizes him? Yeah. Because the last thing they want to do is to give you the satisfaction <laughs> right. of having been right about Donald Trump. Yeah, one of the things we learned about the class structure in this country is that people in the lower middle class or people in the working class or people who voted for Trump don't mind billionaires. They do not mind rich people. What they mind are bossy professionals, teachers, lawyers, journalists, who seem to want to tell them what to do or seem to want to tell them how to act. And if you had to pick the classic epitome of that person who most offends them, that would be Hillary Clinton. And so he, she was exactly the wrong person. And so I find them remarkably stable in their support. There's been some seepage around the edge for Donald Trump, uh, but so far it's just seepage. David Brooks, pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Next on GPS, Henderson Island is right in the middle of the South Pacific. By all rights, it should be a paradise. Instead, it's a dump, literally. Find out why when we come back. For the nearly 70 years since Chinese nationalists barricaded themselves from Mao Zedong's communist revolution, China has considered Taiwan its own territory. It does not have diplomatic ties to any country that recognizes Taiwan's independence. And it brings me to my question. Which country cut ties to Taiwan last week to establish diplomatic relations with China? Panama? Guatemala, Nicaragua, or Honduras? Stay tuned and we'll tell you the correct answer. This week's Book of the Week is Ed Luce's The Retreat of Western Liberalism. This is a sobering analysis that suggests that the open democratic order that has sustained the Western world is crumbling. The reasons are many from soaring inequality to slowing growth to rising mercantilist powers like China and India. Luce is intelligent throughout and his tone is urgent appropriately so. And now for the last look. Henderson Island is a remote, uninhabited island in the South Pacific, about 3,500 miles west of Chile. Sounds like it should be a beachside paradise, right? Well, take a look at these photographs showing what this secluded spot actually looks like. Despite its isolation from humans, currents have swept in an incredible amount of garbage onto the island. In a new study, alarmed scientists who traveled to Henderson say they found the densest plastic pollution ever recorded on Earth. They estimate the island is covered with roughly 38 million pieces of plastic from around the globe, and more than 3,500 pieces of debris are thought to be deposited on the island's North Beach every day. According to Plastic Oceans Foundations, humans use 300 million tons of new plastic annually, half of which is for single use. A World Economic Forum study points out the equivalent of one garbage truck full of plastic is dumped into the seas every minute. By 2050, they say, there could be more plastic in the ocean than fish. This, of course, affects beaches and marine wildlife, but the toxic plastic, often eroded into small pieces, also enters the food chain when fish that end up on our plates, consume it. So if you want to one day find yourself a beachside paradise, please make sure that today you are reusing and recycling. As one of the report's authors told us, 
we as individuals can do a lot, and we need to fast. The correct answer to the GPS challenge question is A. One year after the president of Panama hosted Taiwan's president, Tsai Ing-wen, for the opening of the expanded Panama Canal, the Panamanian government ditched Taipei to establish diplomatic ties with Beijing. China's commercial bite and its increasing clout on the world stage has made it more and more difficult for Taiwan's allies to stand by Taipei. As the New York Times tellingly pointed out, even though Taiwan's president attended the revamped Panama Canal's opening ceremony last year, the first vessel to pass through it was actually Chinese. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week.